0: Welcome to Diversity in Tech podcast, the podcast that brings you expert advice and unique insights on diversity and inclusion in the tech industry. Whether you're a software developer, a designer, a CTO, or a people manager, we're here to help make your workplace more accessible, open, and equitable.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Dint, diversity and inclusion in tech. Join our global community by visiting us at dintglobal.com, that's d-i-n-t-global.com. I'm Davina. And I'm Richard.
0: And we're the co-founders of Dent. So hi, and and welcome to our our podcast on accessibility. I'd like to welcome Leone to our first ever podcast on this subject. So Leone is one of the UK's leading experts on accessibility, arguably probably one of the world's leading experts. We're delighted to have you with us. And I wondered if we could just start with you telling us a little bit more about your background. (laughs) Hello, thanks. It's lovely to be here. I
2: got interested in the web pretty much when the web was new. Uh, I needed a job after I left uni and happened to end up working for one of the first ISPs in the country. And for some reason in the mid 90s, they decided in their wisdom to open their tech support help desk 24 hours a day. Now bear in mind, this was at a time when not that many people were using the internet to begin with, let alone at four o'clock in the morning. So I got really bored overnight on the night shifts and taught myself uh, HTML, CSS wasn't quite a thing then, um, and ended up getting into to web design then. Rolled forward a few years, and I lost my sight. And uh, just as I was starting to, to get life and a few other things back together after that happened, uh, I got into an exchange with someone who said they were working for a, a startup, they just built their first website, they tried to follow these new web content accessibility guideline things, but their client didn't have any budget for usability testing. So if there were any screen readers around who could lend a hand, they'd be, you know, Interested in in some feedback, and I remember thinking, oh well, I used to be a web designer, and I'm definitely a screen reader user now. I can't see, so sure. Uh, and that was one of the founder members of a, a company very well known in the accessibility space now, Namenta. So I started working with them, and uh, through that coincidental conversation, really got the bug for accessibility. As to your kind words about how I come to know so much about this, I guess just 20 years or more of being really curious about how we can make stuff work better for people like me people you know have any kind of conventional disability if I can call it that but also you know age-related conditions temporary conditions like a broken arm or RSI or an eye infection an ear infection and and for ourselves in the future as well because
0: much as it pains me to admit it as we
2: get older you know you find yourself holding your phone out at arm's length to squint at what's on screen uh, and suddenly you find that you know a bit of accessibility wouldn't go amiss for pretty much all of us sooner or later.
0: Yes, I agree. I realise I completely failed to introduce you, Richard. Sorry, but you're always here. Um, so, Rich, my co-host. <laughs> in fact, I'll hand over to you, Rich, to ask some questions.
1: Thanks very much. What um, is accessibility, and, and why should we make tech more accessible for people?
2: We build tech because we want people to be able to use it. If we didn't, there'd be no point in having websites, apps, products, services. Uh, So if we're going to make things that that people can use, we might as well bundle everybody into that and and make it as usable and available to as many people as we we possibly can.
0: Yeah, I I agree. But I think it seems to me, uh, having also built digital services products, Quite a few of them over the years. It seems to me that accessibility is is almost the last thing that we think about normally when we're building tech, or sometimes it's not even thought about at all.
2: That's that's very true, and and sometimes even when teams set out with the best of intentions, it's often the first thing to fall by the wayside. I think there's a, there's a lot of reasons. I think uh, lack of knowledge is one you know if a team or, or product owner understands that accessibility is something that should be done that's a world of difference from actually knowing what the next step is or the first step is so putting it into practice is a gap that's really hard for teams to close sometimes teams who've taken that step to close the gap suddenly realize that actually there's a whole heap of stuff we don't know how to do here and it gets scary and a bit daunting and so again that that kind of first step never really gets taken i think the other sort of problem is is sort of the the reverse of that like I said, everybody sets out the best of intentions, but then features change, the scope creeps, the deadline looms, and it's like, okay, something's got to give. And, and sadly, accessibility is, is often the first thing to be set aside. You know, we'll, we'll put on the backlog, it'll be fine, we'll, we'll do it later. And of course, yeah. we all know the fate of, of what sits on a backlog for the most part. So I think that there's lots of reasons, lots of complex reasons why accessibility isn't necessarily treated as a sort of primary citizen in the kind of production life cycle.
1: Have you seen a big change since the legislative changes that came in? Is it still a kind of a last minute thing to make sure we adhere to this guidance?
2: Uh, yes, pretty much still a last minute thing. I mean, we've had legislation in, in the UK since 1995, but it has absolutely no teeth. So in 27 years of having legislation that requires all products and services to be accessible to people with disabilities. Uh, There has not, to the best of my knowledge, ever been a court case involving digital products and the law. It's really hard as, as an individual to take a company that far through the legal process. If you mean the more recent um, public sector accessibility regulations, uh, yes, it, it, it did have a, a, a big sort of impact. Uh, in fairness, the public sector has for a long time been an awful lot better than the private sector at getting accessibility right. But yeah, there was a lot of, you know, the deadlines looming and certainly at Tetralogical, you know, we had all sorts of people coming to us you know, six weeks before the, the you know the deadlines would <laughs> would would be about to happen going you know oh, can you test our website and can you you know can we fix it you know before yeah Next Monday, <laughs> so, yeah, unfortunately, it still seemed that it was was getting pushed to the the limit of the deadline.'
1: you're right. there's there's something fundamental in in how we prioritize work and and backlogs and and the things that we naturally think of that need doing. and i I, I understand what you're saying about the the public sector being kind of more at the forefront of this. Do you see big opportunities or have you worked with businesses who have adopted an inclusive approach? and really benefited from that from the outset? Uh,
2: yeah, absolutely. Uh, not just organizations we've worked with, but taking you know probably the most obvious case, look at Apple. You know, they invested very heavily in making their iOS devices accessible, and they've continued to do that. If you delve into the accessibility settings, there are so many options for so many different people with so many different abilities and, and requirements. And just taking you know the screen reader market for people like myself who are blind they were early adopters. They adopted a really good product. They made the whole touchscreen interface usable by someone who couldn't see it. And to this date, the best data we've got suggests they still have about 80 percent of the screen producer market on, on touchscreen devices. So, you know, if you want a really good business case for why it's, it's good to invest, um, you know, there's one right there. And yeah, we're working with lots of organisations that see it just as part of good user experience, which to me at least is exactly where it should should sit in the scheme of things.
0: I remember when we were chatting prior to this recording, uh, you were talking about personas and how because obviously personas is something that is quite often used as a tool in the design process and interested to get your thoughts on on how we incorporate accessibility when we're creating those personas.
2: Yeah, it's a really good idea for the reasons that having personas in the first place is a good idea. They're representative of of people typical in your target audience. The one thing I would say though is I think it's really important not to add a couple of personas because disability. You're much better taking your existing set of personas and just randomly assigning a few different disabilities or accessibility needs to the set you've got Um, because that's how it is in in life. I'm female gender identity I'm middle-aged I have purple hair I'm blind I run a company I love technology and reading crime fiction all of those things make up that persona of me if that makes sense Um, so the danger is if you create a persona that's just oh we have a blind person (laughs) it it doesn't quite represent someone within your target audience for all the other reasons that are important it's a bit like saying
0: we have someone with size five feet it's not Uh right yeah (laughs) (laughs) absolutely And that
2: sort of follows through to testing as well. When you get as far as usability testing, mix it up a bit, make sure there are people with disabilities within you know, the, the, the participants that, that you recruit and make sure that other than their disability, they're a good fit for your target audience. There's no point in asking someone who is uh, of retirement age, for example, to come along and test a product that's aimed specifically at people in their teens um, because their entire attitude to life, technology, music, whatever it may be. Will be completely wrong for the thing you're trying to build, never mind the fact that they happen to have a disability.
0: I was thinking, you know, I think quite often when we talk about accessibility we think of users who either can't see or can't hear. But actually, it's much, much wider than that, isn't it?
2: Oh, enormously so. Yeah, absolutely. I'm afraid, yeah, we screen reader users, blind people, have totally become the poster children somewhere along the way. It's a very unfair portrayal of, of how disability is, partly because you're right, it, it you know forgets people with other recognised disabilities. But it also kind of doesn't take into account temporary and situational disabilities i mentioned broken arms before you know there's a whole ton of reasons why why someone might be just temporarily disabled um or because of where they happen to be at the time you know the obvious examples are you go out in bright sunshine if we ever get any in this country um and it's really difficult to to see what's on your your laptop screen or your 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 touch screen the net impact of that is very very similar to the effect of having some kinds of of partial sight disability so there's, there's a whole ton of reasons why yeah disability goes far beyond the bounds of the usual suspects.
1: So I do a lot of work in the in the public sector the GDS empathy lab was something that we used to use quite a mm-hmm. lot and that kind of resource do you find that incredibly helpful uh, and should we be investing more in that type of thing?
2: So an empathy lab as uh, a place where someone can go to try out things like an assistive technology so controlling the computer using speech or just using a keyboard, or even emulating other conditions. Um, for example, there are suits that you can wear that, that make the act of moving and mobility much harder, much more strenuous, and therefore much slower. Um, gloves that you can wear that can constrain your dexterity. So holding a mouse or using a keyboard or even a touch screen device becomes more, more complicated than, than you might typically be used to. The idea is, is that uh, you can experience something of what it's like to be uh, a person with a disability or an accessibility need. To your question, I think yes they are useful um, because they do give you that, that sense of experience. I do have a slight reservation about the idea of empathy at a higher level though. The reason being is is that you can go to an empathy lab and you can try all these things, and yes, it it does give you some insight in into the experiences. But at the end of the day, you can set aside all of those things and leave the empathy lab, and that kind of mental transition is a big part of what it's like to to live with a disability. So so the lived experience of of being a wheelchair user or someone with dexterity difficulties will not be the same as someone who's just gone to an empathy lab to, to experience it on a temporary basis. And and there's no intended criticism in that. I wouldn't dissuade anyone from going to an empathy lab. I think it's a useful thing to do. It's just, I think, really important to remember that a temporary experience is different from from a lived experience. And, and if you can hold that thought in your mind against the context of what you have just learned and experienced for yourself, I think that that's the valuable takeaway from them.
0: So for people maybe starting out on their journey with accessibility and, and and maybe people who don't have a huge budget given we all should be doing it where would you suggest that people start
2: the first thing I would say is especially for all the Douglas Adams fans out there don't panic <laughs> like I said people think about they want to learn accessibility and they, they go and take a look at things like the web content accessibility guidelines and they're humongous yeah. and they're not terribly well written either um, And if you look at that and you think, (laughs) I have no idea what I'm up to, you you can get a bit like, oh my goodness, I don't know where to start, don't know what to do. So try not to do that. Just start with one thing at a time. Things don't have to be perfect. Just try and make them a little bit better than they were yesterday. So find one thing, learn about it, learn how to test for it, do it, make it part of your everyday routine, move on to the next thing. My company, Tetralogical, we created a, a series of 10 accessibility tests anyone can do. And they're all just minute-long videos that start from exactly that point. Um, Just very carefully take you through a few straightforward steps that help you test things like color contrast, keyboard accessibility, text resizing, uh, just some of the the, kind of the principles of accessibility. Start simple and just keep building up. Don't, Don't try to do everything all at once. Just keep accumulating knowledge and experience and and you'll get there and it, it's really amazing how much of an impact you can have by changing one habit and then another and then another
1: absolute spoiler I've read the quick accessibility tests anyone can do and I thought it was absolutely fascinating and <laughs> I learned absolutely loads so I've been doing this for I don't know since I had hair um 10 years or so can you talk to me more about um skip links because that was something completely new and I was completely ignorant of
2: sure so uh, a skip link is The idea that you have a link and it's usually the first focusable thing right at the very top of a web page. And when you activate the link, it takes your focus to the beginning of the main content area. They're a useful feature, particularly for sighted keyboard users. Their typical mode of of navigating through a page will be to use the tab key. To jump from all the focusable things you know, from one link to a button to a form field that kind of thing and in most websites you get a lot of focusable stuff in the header you know link back to the home page you might have the whole of your navigation you might have search field and a search button And if you're a keyboard user and you want to get to a link that's slap bang in the middle of the content area, you've got to physically tab through everything in the header to get to the middle of the page. And you might have to do that on the next page when you get there and the one after. So it gets really, really exhausting. So the idea of a skip link is a keyboard user just tabs to the first link on the page, hits it, and their keyboard focus moves straight into the main content. So it skips over all the the kind of clutter in the the header. Used to be that they were very useful for, for screen reader users as well, but In the years since skip links have existed, screen readers have got much better ways of of navigating around content. So they're now, as I say, mostly usable by by sighted people who, who use a keyboard. And that's why quite often you see the pattern now where the skip link is entirely hidden from view unless you happen to use the tab key to focus on it and then it pops into view. So if you're a a mouse user who doesn't use the the tab key on the keyboard at all, you're probably not even aware that the skip link exists. Uh, Yeah, generally quite a good all-around usable Uh, pattern.
1: Speaking of, of patterns, are they... Are the things we should be doing when we set out at the start of a project, baking those in throughout the things we should follow, things we should do, rather than what tends to happen, which I guess is a panicked audit at the end and, <laughs> and hope we pass. And if we don't pass, here's a sprint where we might fix some stuff. How do we get much better at this in terms of how teams deliver accessible services?
2: Pretty much like we got better at development and production when we switched from waterfall to agile. You, you would do some, you know, wireframes, and then you'd hand that over to the design team who do some design stuff. You'd hand it over to the coders who do the, you know, the implementation. Taking, you know, that that same switch away from that one thing after another methodology and applying it to accessibility works every bit as well. So get it in your requirements if you're a BA or you know, product owner. Whoever writes the brief for the project, to so front and center, say this thing's going to be accessible and usable by by all the people, uh, and then just start bringing that into the whole production process and, and testing iteratively as you go. You know, So as soon as you start sketching up ideas, as soon as you start thinking about user research, any kind of testing, whether it's creative design, interaction design, every step of the way, just start testing a little bit more and a little bit more, partly because it's a lot quicker and easier to test iteratively as you go. But it's also a hell of a lot easier to fix stuff as you go. You know, If you need to tweak your color palette, do it while you're still thinking what your color palette ought to be, not right at the end when it's all you know, part of your CSS right across a, a built website, you can wrap that into a, a typical kind of sprint-based methodology. Lighter, quicker, and, and more iterative accessibility is always going to get you a lot closer to where you want to be. So by the time you do get to launch, if you are, say, in the public sector and you've got regulations that you need to prove conformance with, uh, your last assessment actually just becomes going, yep, tick. Everything worked all the way through the thing. Here's your certificate or your accessibility statement that, that says all the good work is has come to the point it needed to come to.
1: And from a user recruitment perspective, is that relatively straightforward? Is, is it something that a recruitment agency can, can carry out quite effectively?
2: That, unfortunately, is probably the hardest thing of all. Uh, there are recruitment agencies that can help find participants that have disabilities, but it can still be a notoriously difficult thing to achieve well, partly because it's very easy to miss a fine point of detail that actually turns out to have a big impact. I can remember once many years ago. uh, We were looking for someone who used a a computer in in a different way. And we'd asked about people who who didn't use a mouse. And we got someone back and it turned out they just didn't use a mouse with their dominant hand. They used it with their other hand. And so it didn't actually sort of materially make any difference to their ability to to use a mouse. It was just a a slight sort of variation on the theme of what we were asking for. But from a testing point of view, it made no difference at all. It was just like having a mouse user. And and with recruitment agencies, you've got to be very, very careful on the detail um, to make sure that that they understand exactly what it is you need. Having said that, trying to to find other participants from other sources can be equally difficult. Um, There are companies that, that have networks ours included but that of course comes with a cost associated with it which not everybody is able to to extend to getting out on social media is often your best bet DIY recruitment is often a pretty good way to do it and I guess to really um, spill the gossip
1: automated accessibility tools incredibly useful or absolute nightmare or somewhere in the middle
2: incredibly useful as part of a bigger plan Uh, if you're only using automated tools you're in trouble Estimates vary, but somewhere between 25, 35 percent of issues can be picked up by an automated tool. Um, The rest can't. So if they are only mechanism, yeah, you've got a big gap you're ignoring. Um, But they are, you know, very useful. They can test some things a lot more rapidly than a human can. Quality of code, for example, color contrast. Sure, someone could sit there and, you know, take droppers of all the colors on a web page but actually it's a lot easier just to point a tool at it so yeah the the, the sort of either or I think is is a bit of a sort of strange way to look at it It, it's one tool that you definitely should be using Um, like I said it's if it's your only tool that's when you're going to run into problems sooner or later.
0: So for let's say a a CTO or a senior leader listening to this podcast who's not going to be involved in the day-to-day of the actual accessibility testing but What can they do to make a difference in their organisation?
2: Make it clear that it's important to the organisation for your teams to get this right. Making sure your company's got a policy on accessibility and making sure that the whole company whole organization knows what that is and then make sure that you're giving people the ability to actually implement it and realize it it's no good an organization saying yep we're going to meet all these standards and guidelines and we're going to be great but we're not going to give you any training or any support or any time to do it we're not going to give you responsibility all of those things so it's got to filter all the way down you know from from the highest level Um, people have got to be given responsibility for the products that that they they work on given time to train and upskill if they need it, Uh, all of those things. So yeah, from the highest level make everybody aware that it's important to the organization but then back up the words with actions and, and enable people to to do the best they can
0: so that's a good question actually is is for the for the people who might need to train or up skill or for the teams that are lacking that skill i know we kind of touched on hiring users earlier but not necessarily on hiring people with knowledge is is it quite easy to acquire that knowledge for people who haven't got it or is it better to go out and find an expert what what should teams do
2: I think probably a little bit of all of those things. It's good to encourage your your teams to become better at what they do. A good organization should always, in my opinion, at least invest in its team. The chances are actually in most teams or organizations, you've already got unofficial accessibility champions in there somewhere. Almost always now there are people who are doing this quietly, (laughs) whether you know it or not. So seek out those people. Um, Again, you know, amplify what they're already doing. But equally, you know, particularly if you need to move fast, then, yep, recruiting people in with with expertise is definitely uh, an important way, as it would be with anything else. You know, if you're a a development team looking to change the language that you use primarily, you you might train some of your internal team to switch from Perl to Java, um, but you're also going to recruit in people who've already got a lot of Java experience. It's the same with accessibility, yeah.
0: That's a good point. It's, we think of it as something different, but actually it's no different than than adopting a new language or a new approach. It's, no. it's just another piece of the puzzle, I guess.
1: So when we look at headlines in newspapers and things like that, when we see that um, we've had data breaches and uh, privacy invasions, accessibility never seems to make the same splash how does the legal system treat accessibility and the, the needs around accessible services? Uh,
2: in the UK, pretty atrociously, if you want a very straightforward answer. You know, GDPR, you, you can be fined substantial amounts of money as an organization if you are found to be in breach of that. That doesn't exist in relation to our, our disability legislation. And in fact, you know, from personal experience, the onus is almost always on the individual to do the hard work i've been having a very unsuccessful conversation with a very well known organisation in the uk for nearly 10 years their website and app are not accessible to me there are fundamental things i cannot do but you know the the, the way the legal system and, and the disability legislation is set up in this country it's it's on me to accept their commitment that they will fix this within you know a certain amount of time it doesn't happen Uh, Usually, you know, we end up with NDAs involved in these sort of contracts, um, you know, so then when the inevitable commitment is broken, you're either left having to sue for breach of contract or circle back to the beginning and on it goes and, you know, I'm not the only one and it's, yeah. Uh, America is a very different situation of course <laughs> it's quite the reverse you know uh way back in sort of 2008 you know we saw target the sort of retail all purpose retail store uh they were sued as a class action back in 2008 and ended up paying i think it was somewhere in the region of about 6 million dollars in compensation plus fixing their website and doing a whole bunch of other stuff that that cost them more besides I don't know that I'd want to move to a very sort of litigious society um, as it is in the U.S., but I think perhaps the pendulum could swing somewhere in the middle here because, uh, yeah, I think in the U.K., we, we, we as citizens with disabilities don't really have any power to, to put behind making a case sometimes.
1: Do you think there's a way that this can move forward in the U.K., or does it become more carrot than stick, basically?
2: I think it does. Yes. And and that is one thing I will say for, for sort of UK attitudes towards, you know, legislation and things is that perhaps because we don't have a sue first, ask questions later, you know, attitude here, uh, organizations actually do tend to be a lot more receptive to the idea that this is about quality of experience, customer experience. I've worked with a lot of American companies and for them, you know, the first question is is almost always, well, what do I have to do not to get sued? Um, and that's a very sweeping generalization, but uh, but there is generally you know that fear because their legislation can have quite serious repercussions whereas here i think we seem to have attuned ourselves a bit more to the uh, the better reasons actually for doing it i think i would much rather go with the carrot than the stick anytime so yeah i i I think there is a sense of that the the carrot is the best way forward really
0: so as regards the carrot, are there certain types of organization that that really kind of embrace this far more than others
2: Oh, an odd one to choose uh, is actually government digital service and and I will say this with hands up to having been involved in it in the early days but they right from the very beginning put you know user-centered design and accessibility as part of that as, as one of the core design principles and and I think it's really worked the stress of engaging with with government has has decreased massively um, because of that I know this because I, I flew into Canada and lost my passport somewhere en route um, between leaving Heathrow and, and arriving in Toronto. Got there jet lag, middle of the night, equivalent UK time and, and had to report my passport stolen. And I have never been so thankful that the the, the the process was, you know, on the GDS Gov UK platform. It was accessible. It was easy to use. It was simple. It was user-focused because I was so stressed at that point that mm. if something had been unusable or inaccessible, I think I'd have just started to cry. Um so yeah I think there are there are definite examples certainly within the public sector where you can see it's it's really paying off and and I can only imagine it's paying off in terms of what's happening behind the scenes to reduce the kind of need for people to to use call centers and other things in the private sector it's harder to put sort of quantifiable uh, figures or, or or facts behind it um but yes i i think there are organizations out there that that have recognized that that they will see an uptake in in use in services in revenue in conversions in all sorts of things um because they're thinking about people it's it's kind of logical when you think about it um, and I think organizations are, are more and more starting to come around to that idea.
1: I think a lot of the work that, that you, you started in um, the government digital service around accessibility and getting to think that way has really embedded itself within that organization. I was speaking to um, one of their lead product people and I was yeah. struck by how impassioned this individual was by the fact that civil servants and internal people would be using this tool. And that meant that accessibility was just as important as a user-facing website. So I I think the work that you've done um, helping the government digital service understand that that kind of members of the public are important has gone all the way through to now when we build for civil servants and we build for internal teams these need to be accessible services as well.
2: Yep, absolutely right. And it's lovely of you to say that, but I think it probably has very little to do with that, but more to do with something I said earlier, which is that in almost every team now, you will find there are accessibility champions, whether you you, you know you've got them or not. Um, there are there are more and more people out there, you know, quietly doing this, figuring out how to do it. I think that that's wonderful. And we can we can see it, you know, if we look at how conferences have changed over the past decade, go back, 10 years or so, maybe-ish, it was very rare to see an accessibility talk in a conference aimed at, you know, mainstream UX design dev. It's almost always the case now that that it's one of the things that are covered along with privacy, security, performance, you know, the latest framework and, and, and other stuff. And back to the idea, that's absolutely slap bang where it ought to be. And I think, yeah, you can see that just as the grassroots, for want of a better word, you know, interest in this, people wanting to get it right is really starting to, to get more and more visible.
0: That's made me think, actually, the um, so ha- have things changed, do you think, with the pandemic for accessibility? Has it made things better or, or worse? Or? Um,
2: I, <laughs> I think in some respects, it's made some organisations much more conscious of needing to be accessible particularly around uh, you know the education sector when everybody started having to do school and university and college online suddenly all these educational providers went oh boy yeah really got to think about this now because it's not like we can say well you can still go into class and you know do it through an alternative means Um, suddenly nobody had access to alternative means Um, and that I think was one of the really ironical things about the the whole pandemic is, is just a bunch of stuff that the people in accessibility and people with disabilities have been saying for years. You know,
0: can we do it like this, please? And really, this would
2: be a good idea. And, and suddenly, because the whole world was in the same boat, <laughs> a lot of it sort of gained a bit of traction. So,
0: yeah, you've moved uh, the workarounds, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Uh,
2: so, I, I i shouldn't grumble that, that it's like we've been telling you, <laughs> but nobody listened. Um, but, you know, it, if we can find some good in, in something as atrocious as the the pandemic um yeah i i think there have been strides forward in accessibility
0: thank you so much liani for for coming on and, and speaking with us today i think we've all learned an, an awful lot and i for one am going to be going off and checking the dint website with all of your 10 uh 10 tips <laughs> to uh, and no doubt i will uncover things on there and i'm sure rich will be taking it back into its day-to-day work but...
1: thank you so so much I've learned, as davina said i've just learned so much On this, Where can people find out more, um, other than the Dint website, obviously, um, where should they look for you?
2: Uh, Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm just Leonie Watson. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, In fact, you can find all my contact details on my personal blog, which is tink.uk. If you're looking for more information, though, um, please do head over to tetralogical.com forward slash blog. We've got a growing number of posts, including the, the videos that you mentioned there. And generally, just look around. There's a lot of good accessibility information out there. So many good people on, on Twitter and other platforms that you can follow. Um, and yeah, just have some fun with it more than anything. Um, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to get stuck in and give it a go. If it doesn't work, don't worry. Turns out lots of stuff doesn't work the first time you try it. But if you don't try it for the first time, you never figure out the next step. So yeah, just give it a go and have some fun. Fantastic.
1: Thank you so, so much.
2: Thank you for helping me. Thank
0: you, Leanne.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity in Tech podcast. For more information or to join our global community, visit dintglobal.com. That's d-i-n-t-global.com.